Do you want to talk about the Isaacson interview, Troy, or? No, I just thought that I th I thought he was incredibly graceful and charming and thoughtful in how he answered Kara's questions, and I thought that she wanted to pin him down in a way that felt heavy-handed. She came across a little rude, I think. <laughs> I believe Very that's rude. the brand. Isn't that the brand? Look, it's it's a style of interviewing. I think I did a podcast with her one time. It was good. I enjoyed talking to her. I just think it's just her style. Sometimes people like that style. Some people don't like that style. It's kind of like the 60 Minutes, you know, Mike Wallace. I just wonder whether that style goes out of favor because it seems like it, it grates a lot of people the wrong way. And this isn't about Kara Swisher because it's a an adversarial approach to you know journalism. I think that's normal. It can start being a little grating at some point because it feels a little put on, maybe. And even the people being interviewed sometimes like, oh, I know Kara, you're going to be the tough one. And I think she really enjoys that. I was really excited about an Isaacson interview where digging into what happened. And I, you know, I don't disagree with asking the question about or trying to put an account behind some of the stories that were told and whether or not they were fact-checked properly. But it felt she had no patience for his answers, which always kind of bothers me in an interview. When, when, but when but the again, being... that, is, that is an approach. And it really, if you look at like journalism after Watergate, it became adversarial and it accelerated into a new phase of that with Trump. Mm. And it's become much more prosecutorial. I'm not saying good or bad. I'm just explaining like what is actually going on. You know, some people think that that is the best way. And some people think that it's annoying and grating and you're cutting people off and stuff like this. The opposite is, look, I deal with it all the time in podcast series. You have people who are talking circles and I don't think I get the right balance sometimes of being like, oh, well, that kind of sounds like bullshit. But then some people say that I do. I don't know. It's like a really difficult Well, you balance, do that. You definitely do it on this podcast. I'm going to tell you that. We what can't get a word in without you criticizing what we're saying. Oh, Jesus. Look at Troy. Troy is Troy has <laughs> said a thing for two minutes. He never does that. Oh, we're both God. terrified. <laughs> criticizing. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> You're going to have to go hide in your second homes. I feel so bad for you guys. Says the person, you only have one <laughs> book in this home. Where are you? Are you in Miami? You're like a Scott Galloway here. What are you doing? I am. Well, I want to talk about Scott, the other half of this in this in this episode. I have more than one book. No, but let's 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 just tell the audience how we started here. We were trying to raise your microphone, and you said, "I don't usually live here. I only have one book here." And yeah, then you made fun of us for having second homes. Oh yeah, well I know. I'm a man of the people. I just never said which people. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, before you go, I want to talk a little bit about, I had this weird experience last week of going, the Eagles were playing on direct, no, they're not direct TV, I'm sorry. Amazon has the Thursday package. It's very confusing now with where football games are. So it's better that you don't watch football, Alex, because it's like, where do, mm, do I have why. the service and stuff? So Amazon now has them, but then it's also available through direct TV, I guess. And that's like the last technology. So anyway, I, I decided to, I, didn't, I think that direct TV thing is just, it's a service for bars, I think. Oh, is it? So that's how it is. I went out to watch it because I wanted to watch it on a TV. And I have a TV here and I wanted to watch it on a TV. And so I went to Norman's Tavern, which I recommend. It's credible. 
And what I like about Norman's Tavern is you can watch football outside. And I think there's that's luxury to me. Being able to watch football outside is, is pretty much the definition of luxury. I agree. Anyway, it started raining. And so I had to go inside. And then I was like, the service cut out. And so there was no, the TVs were just like the 404 of direct TV. At the bar, because it started raining, and like people were inside, everyone was lined up looking at their phones and watching the game on their phones because it was through Amazon Prime. And it was a very surreal experience that I think is kind of the future of communal entertainment. So what's the insight? The insight is that like it reminded me of like what you were talking about with being on the couch with your your family and everyone's looking at their phones. And like that is the sort of communal experience. What segment are you in? Yeah. yeah. You're in the you're in the soft, cuddly puppy dog segment. I am week. now, yes. They're, yeah. they're driving me crazy. Never watch one of those dog spa videos. Have you ever seen that doggy spa day video where they're like brushing their teeth and like shampooing them and stuff? I watched a couple of those and now it's like it's over for me for a few weeks. <laughs> How do you get out of a segment when you inadvertently fall into one? Can you change the segment? I don't think very Sometimes easily. they merge into a new segment, which is a problem, right? Because I watched funny cat videos and then I watched like weird European sports. You know, there's like hobby horse competitions where people are hopping around on, on hobby horses doing Yeah, tricks. where does that, where does the, it's big in some country. Which country is that? I, don't I think it, no, it's it's in Finland, I believe. Yeah, something like It seems like, that, like yeah. something. I said Estonia. It seems like something that would be. Yeah. In no, Brian, then, do you under do you understand what he just said? You have a a a a, I don't a, think he a, did. I don't a felted did. a felted horse head on a broomstick. Yeah. <laughs> and you dance around an auditorium doing tricks like it's it looks it's like a spoof for sure. It's not real. Is it real? I've seen it's it. It's a hundred percent. It's real. Yeah. I think it's so. real. Yeah. Have you been to Northern Europe? They do all sorts of crazy shit. <laughs> there are some pretty good ones. And I think what the algorithm decided to do was merge these two into something. And then for a while, I kept seeing synchronized dog dancing video where a dog and the owner dance, sometimes in worryingly intimate ways with their pets, like salsa and jumping. You see, there's, there's so that, can we have a little, just a little little kind of tangential discussion about this because i mean we started on a tangent weird well just, but people might there. say you know like netflix is the big winner in the you know in the hollywood strike i think social media is a big winner here the truth is is that i think most people would say well you know long form entertainment's going to be with us a big budget entertainment's going to be with us a long time and people still want that type of programming and it's a big business and it is all of that although it consistently amazes me how this kind of personally created entertainment is just replacing more and more of the spectrum. And it's text and video and images and largely video and everything in between. And it's the spectrum that YouTube owns and TikTok owns and increasingly Instagram owns. And it's just chewing up hours and hours and hours of time that people used to spend on what's called, I don't know, professional media. I think it would have hard to, hard to predicted it, to be honest with you. It's really amazing that we're entertaining ourselves in new ways that's not about kind of professionalized long-form storytelling. Yeah. I guess this may be an obvious observation, but it just feels like when I watch my kids, more and more and more of their time is spent up spent that way. Like a lot of my kids' friends say, well, I don't even bother with TV. I don't even bother. And TV, the, the actual screen, right? The actual... Well, 
Yeah, I mean, that I think too, that right? the screen for sure, but like if you said to them, I'm taking away cable, they would say, well, I couldn't care less and that happened long ago. If you said to them, I'm taking away Netflix, they might be a bit annoyed, but it's not that big a deal. Yeah, I think the value of people's phones as their primary media device is something that I often underestimate. You know, the amount of yeah. people who primarily consume on their phones, which is why those massive screens are being sold so much, right? Yeah, Alex, uh, I see a type of behavior, particularly with young men that moves between, well, say music, social media on the phone, Reddit, and a certain type of role-playing gaming, whether it's Magic or you tell me the other games they play, World of War, Marvel Warcraft, Snap. But it's like, that's the entertainment. That's what matters. Yeah, and and it, they're not watching. They're not at all connected to any kind of what we call television franchises. Yeah, no, they're not watching the bear. That that actually is a good segue. I'm going to make it a segue. Nice you know. into this episode because I want to talk a little bit about the rise of platforms, but also like f- through the lens of misalignment because I think like a lot of the issues we end up discussing really come down to broadly a lack of alignment. And really societies are just a jumble of competing interests that you create incentives to point to wherever progress is set. And and that's always imperfect and involves a lot of trade-offs. But one of the things I think in media that we see, particularly because like we're moving into this personalized media environment and it's like here right now, the only way that that works is if platforms are a choke point, right? And the alignment within platforms is absolutely critical. And operating a tech platform means you have to basically construct an ecosystem out of competing interests. And you have your own, of course, at the top of the food chain. And we see time and again that these platforms end up putting their own interests far ahead of ecosystem participants. It's just, to me, it's almost inevitable. You know, a lot of times we talk about that with publishers. Is it their own interests or is it interests of their customer? The interests of the customer, usually somehow a miracle of miracles, end up being the interests of the platform, like 99% of the time. They do not take actions that are against their own interests. I mean, that era ended. Nobody's going to buy that stuff if you're selling it. I want to talk about Unity because I don't know anything about gaming. Obviously, I got real quiet when you started talking about gaming. Alex, can you tell us what is going on with, first of all, what is Unity and Mm -hmm. what is the current uproar? Because I think it's an interesting corollary, I think, to what's, what's happened to publishers over the years. Yeah, so big, big Unity news this week or last week. So what what is Unity? Unity is what's commonly con- called an engine, and it's, it's essentially a development framework for video games. So you know it's the tool that you use to make video games. And there are two major players. Uh, one is called Unreal. Unreal are, is the engine and the development tools built by the guys who make Fortnite and who are also known to have had a big fight with Apple on App Store fees. They're called Epic Epic Games. And then the other one is, is Unity, and Unity has been a staple development platform for many, many, many video games, especially video games by smaller teams because the tools are, are geared. So they allow you to kind of put all the logic and code and art and music into a system and then build games from mm. that. So a lot of the games that you're playing will be built on Unity. One of the, the superpowers of, of things like Unity and Unreal and why they are so attractive to developers is that they then kind of make it very easy to publish to any of the systems. So to publish to an iOS phone, an Android phone, an Xbox, a PlayStation, 
that stuff used to require entire teams just to get each platform built. Because it's not, yeah. video games are not, you can't just convert them like an audio or video file and then upload them to YouTube. The code itself needs to be built specifically for the platform. So, you know, if you were a small studio, there's basically not a ton of places you can go. There's other options, but not a ton of places you can go. And for a long time, Unity had a very kind of small business friendly license where you could get the tools for free. And then if you reached a specific threshold, you know, you would start talking about some licensing, a specific sales threshold. And that is actually how a lot of these tools are now built and sold. They're very cheap to run or own when you're building a game over those two, three years where you build it. But if your game hits a specific sales quota, then they, they start talking about taking a cut or they, they charge a license fee then. So it's low risk. It's great for a small developer because mm. they don't have to have any upfront risk. And that's how Unreal does it. Well, wait, wait. Most of these small developers couldn't even exist without these engines, right? I mean, no, they just no, no. couldn't they, have they the replace and, Yeah, they replace entire yeah. teams. of. It's as if if you want an analog, it's as if you were launching a site and you had to build your own CMS and hire a team to build a content management system and, and all that stuff, right? Versus... You know, going to Medium or Substack, right? But at a at a scale that's a little bit longer time scale and and higher cost, but about the same thing. So what Unity did is they out of the blue during the Apple event announced a change to their terms of service and the way that they would charge, and they announced a new innovation, which it would which would be you pay per install. Uh, yeah, and so they called this the runtime payment. So. Whenever oh somebody God. installs, this is like government should. By the way, government should do this when they want to raise taxes. They should be like, "We have this new innovation." Yeah, and also <laughs> announce it during an Apple event when nobody's paying attention. Yeah, people are at the webinar. I mean, and so the first, as I was reading this, I think actually the news came up when I, we recorded a podcast or something. So I was reading this and I was like, "Oh, that's fine." You know, all these businesses need to make money. The the free everything is a zero interest rate phenomenon and. Paying something, especially if your game has a sales target that it meets, is fine. But then reading about it more, it turns out that they had this very crazy, wild idea of charging you per install. Which means if you install an app on, on your phone once and then reinstall your phone and reinstall the app, you would pay for that install twice, even though you bought the game once. Which could mean that, hypothetically, if people pirated your game a million times and didn't pay for it, you would still pay Unity for every one of these pirated installs. Which could mean that if a malevolent actor decided to build a bot farm that reinstalled your game a million times, they could bankrupt your studio. Eh, I mean, is it any different from like Google charges it for search clicks? You could have a competitor clicks on it. You just put in business rules. It was announced without any of these caveats. And it's come out now that some engineers at Unity had tried to communicate that impossible to enforce in a way that is that is fair. And it, they basically changed the terms of, of service and the pricing model on games that people had already spent two to three years developing. So it created a massive, massive amount of bad press for them when many large studios and small studios started saying that they would pull their development from Unity. They also did another thing, which was that they provided a clause that said that if you use their ad services or monetization services, that fee would be like, removed. You wouldn't pay that fee if you use their their services, yeah. which is likely illegal in places like Europe. Of but course. to me, like 
I mean, sure, of course, they're going to solve all these edge cases and the piracy case and all these edge cases are going to solve. But to me, this is a real wake up call of a company whose incentives are being misaligned yeah. with a large part of their customers. And they're basically saying, like, we really want these ad supported free mobile games. That's where our money is. That's where our growth is. And anything else we're going to put terms that are really not attractive. And even if they come back and fix or even kind of retreat from some of the things that they were asking, what is clearly communicated is that long-term that company isn't interested in that type of, of content being created yeah. on their platform. You know, when you're hitching your wagon to an engine like that as a studio, it's years of investment. I have to think in like two, three, five years. Like where are these guys going to be in five years when I release my game? I don't know. And yeah. build your own engine. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So Troy, I, I just want to bring you in. You've been like, you know, chewing. Wow. Oh, so you're a veteran of the platform publishing. You well, must, you must like, have uh, such sympathy. I saw you like wiping a tear away. Well, like, I didn't know we had a new segment, Winer's Corner. <laughs> Listen, their model wasn't working. They changed their model. They fucked it up. They introduced it badly. They didn't think of all the cases. They didn't listen to yeah. their engineers. And so there's an execution problem, but them changing their business model so that it's based on some type of activity and that they want to encourage you to use their monetization their ad monetization services which probably feels anti-competitive because they're trying to push that other big ad network that publicly traded one out of the way what's it called alex the other big gaming ad network App Lovin? Is it App Lovin? App Yeah, I mean, it's it's a challenge to App Lovin because they would get a sort of competitive advantage by... Yeah, and, and there's this called Iron Forge. Iron Source, sorry. Yeah, Iron so, Source, yeah, you know, the biggest drag is that people that get caught sort of halfway through a development process or whatever, but, you know, you're using someone's tools. There's n number of cases in the world where you're building something using a product from someone else and it doesn't go the way you want it to, like... Yeah, Make your own. but number. So let me ask. Let me just, just ask just, this. Well, one like, second. What? One second. Let me okay. let me let me respond to that. I'm not whining. I agree. That is entirely the case. And they're absolutely allowed to do whatever the hell they want. I think the communication was bad, and it created a lot of okay. wasted time and effort on our side. But at the end of the day, what I need to look at, like, where are their incentives two, three years from now? And build your own engine is not a viable option. It's once again a story about getting hitched to a platform and the incentive changes. And then you're kind of stuck. Like build your own social network, build your own CMS. Those are not viable options for a lot of creators. So sorry, Brian. No, no, but I think that's that's exactly it. Is is trying to. I think what you're both getting at is you can call it an engine, you can call it a platform. It's all different things. But the, ultimately, yeah. you've got centralized platforms to me that enable independent creators or small groups to exist when they couldn't otherwise. The fact that there are so many publishers out there who can whine about Google and Facebook is a testament to the fact that these things exist that enable so many publishers to be out there to be able to whine about these. So like, I understand because look, when we covered the different changes that Google and Facebook we discovered that we could put gifts on on our website, and so I put the Charlie Brown going to kick the, the football gif, like or story. We must have used that gif like 150 times because it summed up so many stories that we wrote about publishers and platforms. Because platforms are going to look out for platforms. I don't buy it that they're just looking out for for their users. That stuff was just marketing pablum. They're looking out for themselves and their businesses. And sometimes their interests don't 
intersect with users. Sometimes they don't intersect with the people, the publisher, the ecosystem participants. And I don't know who does the best job of aligning interests from a platform. I think that aligning interests, is it too much to ask? And I think it is, but is it too much to ask of corporations that support creative endeavors that some expectations that they won't like fuck with people? Yes. (laughs) I, mean, I get it. I know it is, but it's it's disappointing. So probably, you know, despite the fact that they're about to fight off a, a massive legal challenge, Google has been the best at balancing. I mean, when you think about it, every decision they make impacts so, so many people. I would say broadly, the brand perception of Google is really positive. But when you look across, you know, that they basically own the operating system of the web and they control a whole spectrum of video content through YouTube and increasingly are about to own the cable box through YouTube TV, they have to balance the needs of a lot of different constituencies. And I would argue they've done the best job. I think that's actually an interesting point. I I actually agree. I think they've been a mostly benevolent dictator. And those that have been like exterminated by Google will probably disagree. And I understand that. But taking a broader view of the ecosystem, which I think is going to, it's going to make this legal challenge, this case against them for anti-competitive behavior, which they absolutely 100% engaged in. I'm sorry, I covered this. They absolutely did all of these things. I mean, if you compare Microsoft's dominance of the PC era and how they were viewed by the constituents to Google, Google's done a way better job. Yeah. They have I, the, Microsoft's product was also not a great shittier. product. Yeah, it yeah. was shittier. Although yeah. I would say there's there's Google gets a lot of goodwill from YouTube. The, the rest of Google less so. I would say YouTube has probably more successfully managed that than Google itself. Anybody that does or has invested anything on the web at this stage, you know, looks at Google yeah. and says, "You made us do this. Look at what we did to our beautiful boy." And you kind of go to yeah. the variety.com and it's stuck with ads and bullshit and SEO crap. Oh, they don't blame Google for that, though. They blame they Variety should. for that. They, yeah, well, no, this is should. the interesting thing. So Scott I'm Galloway, saying Variety. Scott Galloway had a really interesting column. You shared it with us, Troy, from his medium. I didn't know he's... His cinematic universe is very interesting. I mean, he doesn't have like seemingly a central home. Anyway, he, he had a post, the, the No Mercy, No Malice thing about the Google case and putting it in an interesting context. The part that I, I wanted to talk about was this. I'll just quote from it. Despite turning search results into a carousel of ads and Google services, Google has racked up 90% market share in search queries, 95% on mobile. How? As Microsoft once did, it leverages its control over the most popular mobile operating system, Android, and spends unprecedented sums on deals, assuring it is the default search engine on computers and phones, more than $10 billion a year. Google says it's the leader because it has the best product. But if so, why pay the $10 billion a year to be the default? Dominance in search is, is self-fulfilling as it gives the company unrivaled data to what people are searching for and, and the results that generate clicks. And then that data feeds into its dominance, et cetera. And this, I think, is at the heart of an inconvenient truth of this, is that Google has a stranglehold on this market. And I can remember covering them in the early days. Google did not come up with paid search. Bill Gross did it at goto.com. It became Overture. And everyone, every time I wrote about Google, Overture executives would send me an email or call me and would say, Google is using their O&O dominance 
And at the time, they only had 60% share. In order to cut these deals with AOL and everyone else that are completely money losing in order to dominate the market and exterminate like competition. They did this openly. This was 2003 that they were doing this. Well, and they do it through their DSP by only giving you access to YouTube through their DSP. I mean, yeah, they use their market power for sure. Yeah, (laughs) Troy, even you in your caricatured role as the cheerleader for corporate power, give me the case, because I think you're also a cheerleader for capitalism. Give me the case for why there shouldn't be the government enforcing, because the government does have a role to play in markets, and, and the role to play is to make sure they're free. And Peter Thiel, to his credit, he said the quiet part out loud when he said competition is for losers. If there is a backlash against quote unquote big tech, it's because of this. They hate competition and they do everything they can to avoid competition. And it leads to malformed markets and misplaced incentives. Well, I don't think it's big tech. I think organizations in a capitalist systems are they're just organisms, right? And they'll create sort of any type of protective shell to make sure that they can grow and protect profits. I yeah, mean, man, have you what, bought canned soup or detergent lately? I mean, it's one the, company. Well, y- yeah. you get oligopolistic structures in virtually every large industry. I think that what happens in platforms is a little bit different than than soup or other packaged goods or insurance companies. You have concentration to one company. I think that Google search is a big problem. At 95%, it's basically there's you have one one outlet. And so I just don't know how, I guess we could speculate that you prohibit them from doing these kinds of deals with Apple that would upset, I mean, it's a huge amount of money for Apple through Safari to protect those positions and be a kind of default search engine for the for iOS. At this point, you've got both very shrewd protective practices in paying off distribution points combined with a product that's really hard to replicate at scale. And I don't just mean making a search engine, making a search engine with AI that works in all the environments, that has all the monetization, like all of the stuff that's really, really hard to wait, replicate. Wait, wait, wait. Hard, hard is a technology challenge, an engineering challenge, yeah. or hard no, because uh, they're dominant? They're too dominant. They're dominant. It's yes. a system challenge. It's a system challenge. And so the, the, more, logical... the more visitors, you, the more users you get, the better your system becomes. So therefore, everybody yeah. that's lagging behind gets further behind. It's just. Yeah. It's but a, I, I, I don't know what question you're asking, Brian. I think you're asking me the question: Is is this a case where you would you would look for some type of external action to to limit the power of Google? And I think yes. And then the question is how. Where do you go? What do you do? Do you force them to divest YouTube? I mean, it's really, YouTube is both a beloved and a like owns an entire category of content. And they're about to slurp up the rest of it with YouTube TV. So if another entity controlled YouTube, would they then go and create another search engine that could compete with core Google search? Would you look for someone like Yahoo to step in and say, hey, we can resuscitate our search capability and try to compete with Google? Like, are we waiting for Microsoft to step in and for Bing to become a thing that could finally compete with Google? Like, I don't know. Isn't isn't the solution maybe something where you simply separate search from the entire ad marketplace, right? They own yeah. every piece of the stack. That's that's also part of the that's problem. That's the cleanest. Like the cleanest solution anything. is forcing them to divest all their ad tech, I think. 
And guess what? If they did that, everybody that's a shareholder would do great. The people that might not want it are like three people at the head of Google. I, I used to write for DM News. I loved it because I loved writing about the direct marketing industry after the dot-com collapse because the direct marketing people were that's just so sentence. hard-nosed. Well, they were just so hard-nosed and, and there was so much bullshit in the dot-com era. And the, the direct mail people, they'll put a dollar in if they're getting $3 out. And go to a DMA convention someday if you have a chance. It's amazing. Like I went to a crazy postal service party there. It's in New Orleans. It was great. A bunch of like postal service people getting wild. But I can remember covering the start of like AdSense. And they had competition in this area from people like Sprinks. There was this company, Sprinks. And Sprinks had about.com like completely sewn up, right? And they were doing a great job with about and everything like this. And Google went to them and was like, yeah, it really sucks that you have, we're sending you all this traffic and you're using someone else to make money off. Hmm. Guess what? Mm. About.com dropped Sprinks, eliminated the company and about.com went to Google. I don't think that's a coincidence. And there is an inherent conflict and there's a misalignment of incentives when they control the distribution and they also control the monetization. And the unwritten or unspoken rule has always been, hey, we'll send you traffic, but we're going to get our piece. We're going to get our piece because you're using our ad tech. Yeah, and you, you need to put our analytics code in there and you need to put our ad code in there. Urchin. And I mean, they bought Urchin and eliminated an entire category of analytics exactly. companies. So every core component of having to run a website, they took over. And in doing so, I would say one, one of the things that might be a, a problem for them is that I think the product's actually getting worse. Both the web product and the Google search product is getting worse, especially compared to some new tools coming out with, with AI. I do think that AI, both as a search device and as a way to reframe a website, is going to be... Is going I, to think be you, a, I think the Google search results are getting better. What? Give me a break. Uh, bullshit. That's because so you like seeing when, more like ads. Last week? Well, I mean, setting us... Troy is a cheerleader for monetization. Jesus Christ. No, 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 no. <laughs> I've been using the AI-assisted product, and I think it's kind of useful. I think that the AI built into search is really, really useful. I think their ability to discern what I'm really looking for in any query is pretty amazing and much better than it used to be. So on that level, I think it's getting better if you... I think that the, the monetization pressure and therefore the density of paid submissions in the SERP is getting worse. I, lo I love your euphemisms, Troy. Which ones? Well, like density of like when you're just talking about like an ads shit show. Like, and I think the centralization of search with Google exacerbates the problem. Right, So for publishers, the reason that Penske Media is, jam is jamming every sort of SEO optimized thing, I mean, their SEO op operation is, is churning at a high level. The reason that these companies are doing this is because it's incredibly profitable and you optimize to one algorithm. If search was an actually competitive market, publishers, it would be a pain in the ass for publishers well, to, to even know, operate in these. Well, you might optimize ways. to better content. I feel like it's a little bit unfair to single out Penske, but they are serial offenders and their sites are heinous. They're, Can you give us some <laughs> I like how you say it's unfair and then you, could, you go to call them heinous. It's unfair, but true. No, but come on. You don't have to come at me from the top and the bottom and the middle at the same time. I mean, most of us consume media. I thought you media. cheered for density. That's not true. I'm the pioneer of cleanly, cleanliness. Oh, yeah, elegant. I forgot. He, right. he is. But can you, what, what sites are, are Penske sites? I don't think everybody. Variety, knows. the one you. you Variety, oh my God. Rolling Stone, Hollywood Reporter. They're all bad. 
the, the thing is, by Yield's doing good. that, you know, I, I've called it fracking before because it feels like the, the last gasp of something. It has pushed me so far into using AI tools to reframe all the content I read. I use this artifact app and it, it'll clean the site up, strip out all the ads and, and bullshit. It'll give me a summary of the site. It will read it to me so I don't have to look at everything. I'm an early adopter, so I know, you know. It's funny that I, you're making a case alien. for for platform power. That's what you're making a case for. Optimizing to the consumer need above the sort of priorities or whims of a publisher. That's all. That's why platforms exist, Alex, yeah. Ex- for the exact reason you just described. So I can remember, I'm like going down all this memory lane this episode, but like during the early internet, you didn't have to look at the calendar for when the quarter ended because the number of pop-ups and pop-unders you would get were just unbelievable towards the end of the quarter because people had to make their numbers. Uh, You still see that now. I see that with Snapchat. Their notifications go up materially near the end of the quarter. (laughs) So, But the only thing, and I remember, I think it was Peter Naylor who who said this to me. He was like, yeah, that's what we do at the end of the quarter. He goes, the only reason that we ever stopped was because the browsers made it really difficult to do. And because the centralization actually, and this is one of those things where it's on the one hand, on the other hand, because so like I would, I want to pick your brains on this because it's now gotten to the point where, in my opinion, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it, you know where it's even worse? I just got back yesterday from the UK. It's oh, worse yeah. there. And That's it's ground zero for like user experience atrocities. Well, and the number one atrocity is GDPR. Oh God, that's your favorite. No, no, full page takeovers on every site you go to. I mean, it's just, yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it, it, it's, it's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's a fucking joke. It doesn't, does it, it doesn't do it does anything nothing. for anybody. Yeah. People, everybody it, just clicks, yeah, sure, track me. Well, I, I say no, actually, but, or I say it's, it, to me, it's just like whatever, wherever my I go through is. and yeah, I decide exactly. on each single, each one, which permissions I want. I actually read the terms of service, Troy, and yeah, make sure and that they're not going to use I do an informed data. decision and then I read, you know, the, ridiculous. The, the three embedded tweets on the article page. So was this just the inevitable outcome? Is this, where do we go from here is the question. I don't care. Listen. The incentives are wrong. Publishers need the money. Monetization is harder than it ever was. We have the open web is a train wreck of just kind of monetization horror show. Mm-hmm. And now where do, where do we go now? And and, and policymakers made it worse by adding right. yet another overlay. So now where that, do we go from cyclical here? Cyclical where there's a there's a platform that comes out with a set of incentives. People jump onto that platform and find ways to juice those incentives. The platform makes a bunch of money off these juiced incentives, so it starts optimizing around that. It's bigger than that, The Alex, entire though. environment gets shitty for consumers, so that hopefully gives a new platform an opportunity to say, hey, we have a version of this that isn't shitty for consumers. So the AI platforms are going to eat the web because it's become a cesspit. It's, be, it's the what some people call the enshittification of the internet, right? And so something needs to come and consume all that rot and turn it into compost and make something new. The problem it. is, the pro- okay, so that's great. So the problem is that the, the platform shift you're describing is basically untenable for most media creators and publishers because it completely, if we thought that the existing web fragmented media consumption experience down to an article level, moderated or mediated through platforms, this one's going to obliterate it. 
So you, you completely remove all context and all semblance of any connection between a media brand, a piece of content, or a content package, oh, I, which I, is where I, the value was created. I think any piece of media that's that's so abstracted from its creator, like text, like specifically written written media, or that is non-interactive, so it doesn't require a specific device interaction, is going to be completely consumed by AI. Like I think if you're just if you're writing for the Economist now, you're writing like uncredited like 3000 word pieces like i don't know where your future lies but if you're a tiktok star or youtube person personality you stand a much better mm. chance of of surviving I hey that's my know. take man i know it's a, it's a strong one but like just to use the economist example brands are going to be more important than ever i think what you're talking about is like the middle is going to get destroyed Honestly, a lot of them brought it on themselves. And I think if you're super niche or you're tied to like an individual, like you can exit, you can exit this system. Like I spend zero time thinking about it, to be honest with you, for my own business. I don't, it doesn't matter to me, like at all. It is amazing that the exit path in your case, in many people's case, was a platform that removed all functionality from the page. Email. You don't have to, you can't mess, you can't destroy an email with pop ups and pop unders and <laughs> sliding up and down. It's an email. You yeah, have yeah. no formatting choices. It's like a monastery, you know, like yeah. with, 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 you, it's silent, a media monastery. Yeah. <laughs> silent meditation. You can't fuck around here. It's well, totally sometimes true. we need to be saved from ourselves. Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Everybody gets greedy. I don't, I don't, to Troy's point, but I don't. This wasn't a platform problem, it's a human condition. But it is the deal we make with platforms. It, I'm not saying the platforms aren't inherently bad. I'm just saying as media creators, you need to really consider the investments that and how, how much you attach yourself to a platform. I want to try to actually make a nexus to what's going on with the labor capital battle because I think there is some weird sort of synergies there. And, you know, the auto workers are having this, it could be a, a really devastating strike for the economy. And we're seeing labor unrest everywhere. I think sometimes the unionization sort of wave gets gets overdone. It's still only 11% of the population. It's just going into newer areas, particularly as our economy has changed a lot. So I don't believe that union protections are only for quote unquote blue collar worker. You have to be working on an assembly line because ultimately what unions are, are about trying to create leverage for workers versus capital. That's, that's where it is. Like I think people pretend it's something else about, you know, yes, you don't want to get your hand caught in the machine and stuff like this. But the reason <laughs> that that even exists is because capital just cares about capital. And so you're just trying to get some more power back on your side and to really just align the incentives. And I, to me, it's like, it's very clear that companies are in a difficult position these days because, and you use it with like publishing, for instance, unions are only going to become more active in publishing organizations. And I think ultimately with a lot of these, with platforms, with companies, you got to decide, are you going to exit or are you going to organize? Like at the end, like that's what you have to do. Otherwise, you're just asking for favors. And I think companies could be in a difficult position where you have some really talented people who will just choose to exit because they will choose an independent path. And you're going to have a lot of people who then organize and they make these difficult businesses even more difficult. This is my, I'm, I'm in this like doom loop phase. <laughs> Well, is it a doom loop or is it, I mean, I, I have, I can't really talk to unions. I'd love to hear what Troy has to say, but is it a doom loop or some could see this as a golden age for the labor movement for people in work, you know, unemployment's low. Yeah. It should 
pushes wages up. People no, have I, much I, I'm, more power. I'm talking about from the company side, from the company side. Oh. Because like, I think that workers are going to be more empowered. When you look at the demographic realities, when you look at just immigration, the fact that we have rock bottom unemployment while we're bringing inflation down, I do not believe is, I'm not like a macroeconomist, is, is a coincidence. Like we're going to have tight labor markets and they're going to get even more tight because you can exit corporate systems more easily in a lot of categories today than you ever could. And mm -hmm. I don't know where that leaves companies, particularly in publishing, if they're losing I think a lot of the substackification was overblown, but you know the reality is a lot of these organizations could end up hemorrhaging talent, and then the people that are left behind are all going to be organized, and you're not going to be able to call it feedback anymore. You got to call it feed forward. I don't yeah. know if you saw that. I mean, feed, love that one. Feedback's oh, out. God. I'm starting a section called Feed Forward in my email newsletter. Well, everyone should sign up. So I, I don't even know. I'm going to just come up with some cockamamie thoughts on this, but. And I have some firsthand experience, so I can well, share. Well, I want to start with that. Will you let us all know, because I've never asked you, how did you draw the, sh the short straw to be the front man for the corporate side against the unions? Because that's like the worst job in the world. You know this, right? It was a terrible, I shouldn't have done it. I think it really hurt me, to be honest. Oh my God, it, it obviously really, hurt you. It was really stupid. And so, yeah, I don't claim to be uh, the most forward thinking around things like that. But you know what I thought I was doing? There was a couple of reasons. One was I thought it was my job as the leader of the company, as the president of the company. I thought that my job was to fight for or to, to manage the position of the capital of the organization. The second was, I don't know, I felt like at a time of real profound change and instability, having a layer between the kind of manager class and the worker class was going to create additional inflexibility and management complexity that we couldn't really deal with because managing a media company in the last five years is, is extraordinarily complicated, particularly in scaled businesses where you're trying to shift from one medium distribution system production paradigm to a new one. And you need to kind of manage revenue and profitability through that, which means inevitably people have to change and there's a lot of pressure on the people that make the product to make new things, to change the way they work, to be more efficient. All of that puts a lot of pressure on the sort of creator part of your organization in a media company. And, you know, kind of bad on the whole digital media marketplace. We did kind of hi-ya those people. Like we were like, let's go. We need to make more content. We need to make it faster. We're going to measure everything you do. Get to work. We need output. We need page views. Like we made a kind of terrible working environment for them because it was so quantified. And people go to journalism school or, or, or want to be photographers or videographers or any type of creative people to make things. And then suddenly we just said, listen, like, are you producing enough? We can quantify every penny you make and you need to work harder. Yeah, there's always in that profession, there's a lineup of people that want to do the job and work for the fancy media company like around the building. So wages at the entry level are very low. And then you get this generational shift and everybody, like every generation wants to make its mark in some shape or form. And you get a lot of people that wanted it, like they just wanted to be empowered. They wanted more control over their yeah. work life. And they, you know, like, I think that's real. And I didn't respect that enough. I thought my job was to fight the union, to be honest with you. 
Yeah. And, and, and I would say that without getting into detail too much, that the sort of elders in an organization like that had really bad union memories from very kind of like prolonged union battles in the newspaper business. And so it was like, we've never had a union in this building. We don't want a union in this building. Like over my dead body, go fight it. We'll lawyer up, do everything you need to do to make it difficult to unionize. And that's the story, really. And so I think it's just different people looking after their, their own interests. But the truth in the end, I would say that the tragedy of the whole thing is the people in the union didn't get much more. They certainly didn't get job security or, or significant pay increases. A lot of money and time and energy was wasted fighting the fight. I don't know. In the end, I, the smartest thing to do would have just said, hey, we'll just take the Vox agreement and we'll just copy that and let's, go to, let's get back to work. Yeah. Because Vox had already m- moved through the process. Yeah. Now, they, they emerged from it with the least like acrimony, I think. But I think it's a lot about is just like it's really difficult to align interests in companies at the end of the day. And there's always going to be some fuzzy because it's basically how are you going to split up the money at the end of the day? Well, especially in a private company like that. I mean, I think that there are situations in smaller companies and in companies that have where a lot of the workforce participates in the appreciation of the value of the business. So this has happened, for example, at Tesla, where people make less money, but they are stockholders and they've benefited from the meteoric rise of the value of the company and many of them in a life changing way. And so when more people can be can participate in the success of the company, either in terms of capital appreciation or profit sharing or whatever. Now, it's hard to make that trickle down when you have thousands and thousands of people. Yeah. But that's you know, why that's I'm short big companies. Of, that is why I'm short big companies. I will never work for a big company again. Never. Hey, hey, Troy. I just yeah. wanted to say I really I know this was a, a hard time and I really appreciate your candor and sharing that. It was a really insightful story about oh, what went on. I, yeah, I mean, I, the tragedy in the end is that I think it gave a number of, of people a sense of purpose. By the way, I mean, there's a big difference between kind of union management power balance in companies that have real market power and stability than in ones where there's tremendous change. And I think it's one of the complexities in the Hollywood strike right now. Right. This is what I wanted to actually ask about. Because it feels to me like we're talking about the, the, the kind of delivery driver strike and the auto worker strike. And these to me, from where I'm sitting, feels, feel pretty straightforward. And these businesses are doing okay at the very least. And there's a very clear risk to them if the workers stop working. So I think the workers will get a thing and they're, they're asking for more money or air conditioning or, you know, it all seems very reasonable. The actor strike, they're dealing with an industry in fucking turmoil, right? Like all of these media companies are in deep trouble. Even Disney's, you know, uh, is a pretty big mess right now. So it feels like that strike is, is going to end in tears. Like I can't see that strike ending with anyone being happy about it. Yeah, I think the, the issue there and I think it even happens within media companies, is the inequality, right? Like, if you're going to have a dynamic economy or a dynamic company, you're going to have dynamism, you're going to have, have a level of inequality, right? If you're going to have a performance-based culture, you're going to have a level of inequality. For instance, take the Hollywood strike. Bob Iger getting off his private jet to say, you're being greedy and unreasonable <laughs> in Sun Valley. <laughs> sort of points to and the reason that it was it was hung out there david zaslav's famous 200 million whatever like pay packages and stuff 
it's hard. It's a hard one to pull off. I honestly think, and I remember this in the early COVID, I think early COVID really exacerbated a lot of problems within media companies because of Zoom. Because I would talk with like executives and I'd be like, is that the Berkshires? Are you, are you at the Hamptons? And then I would talk to reporters in basements and Flatbush and stuff like this. There's always inequality in the office, but you're in an office and it's not like front and center. So then I noticed that a lot of the execs I was talking to started doing those, those stupid virtual backgrounds. <laughs> That's solid uptick for that. But I think it really you know, did when exacerbate I... inequality, the inequality at the end of the day. It's a normal human thing to be like, I don't know if the word is jealous or whatever, envious or whatever, but to feel like it's unfair. When I was an executive at Airbnb, I had a few comments where people tried in a nice way to say that they were a little disappointed by where I lived. They thought I'd live somewhere more grandiose versus a small apartment. So oh, that really? was the opposite. Yeah. Well, I think that it's all connected to what probably is the challenge of our times. And it, it's like there's something like 22 million millionaires in the country, in the US. You've got this concentration of wealth on account of the rise of a kind of knowledge era. Also, people have sort of access to, there's this kind of opportunity for everybody to kind of participate in similar experiences, but you can't quite have it. To me, it feels like we're living a time where like rich people have to hide their sort of luxuries and spending and yeah. and in a way that like is almost like, eh, really, I don't want you to see what I'm doing. And there's a lot of rich people now. But there's also a lot of people that they sort of need to enable their lifestyle. So you get this real kind of upstairs, downstairs economy where I, I just feel like we're going to struggle for the next like long period of time with unless technological change creates more of a kind of like level social playing field where, where more people have access to a better life that like God help you if you have to wor work in a slaughterhouse. Like it's, it's, it's just like awful, right? Like we live in a time. Awful. I see what you did there. Awful, right? Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's made worse by the fact that you have also so much access to people kind of sharing much easier life on social media, whether that's true or not. kind of meant that, yeah. 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 It's perception. I, so I was listening to Sam Harris's latest episode yesterday of his podcast, and it was about the low trust society with uh, David Brooks. And there are some signs that, I mean, it's not equalizing, but that the labor class is doing better, that millennials actually might have seen an increase in wages. And one of those things that uh, was interesting was that AI is actually putting traditional white labor jobs at risk more than, you know, the masseuse or the person that's like yeah. stitching the leather on, on the seat or artisanal jobs that kind of got really dismissed during the rise of the information age, right? These All these yeah. jobs were like, if you told your parents that you were going to be a plumber or a dentist, they would go like, what the hell are you doing? Now, I grew up in an era where I couldn't tell people that I wanted to be in computers because they didn't think it was a real job. But I think it, the th same thing is going to happen to lawyers. Like if you tell your parents that you're going to become a lawyer, that might become one of these high risk I was jobs. always asked if I was going to go to law school because it's like he's not good at math and science. So and he clearly can't sell. But they didn't know I can sell. I, mean, I love being underestimated. Yeah, no, yeah. it's about leads at the end of the day. By the way, do you know how many billionaires there are in the United States? Let's take a guess. 200. Troy? It's definitely more than that. This is not Price is Right. Give a number. A thousand. 
Uh, close. It's 756. Wow. According to Google Generative AI. How many do you know personally? I know a couple. Like I could email, I would say like three billionaires and maybe one would respond. Isn't, isn't, that, isn't that weird in itself? I just, I just thought about it. It's kind of a weird thing. <laughs> <laughs> I probably knew. I mean, I know like at least three or four. And but it's, you know, it's, it's odd. but obviously, it's getting close to the billionaire. It's like a great. I I I went to some party in, at like Art Basel in Miami, like for a watch. Like it was Grand Seiko. I had no idea it was during the year. I was basically not doing anything. So I was like, sure, I'm available. It's COVID. I'm nothing to do. And I was talking with an art collector or something, and she was like, "We just work for billionaires." She's like, "All of us are just on some level." like just catering to the billionaire. And I was like, hmm, that's nice. I don't know. Am I wrong? I just felt like when I grew up, there were people on my block that did things with their hands and there were people that worked in offices and we cleaned our own houses and we made our own food. Mm-hmm. And now it feels like I have rich friends that don't even know how to clean up after themselves. You know, the maid sweeps through every day. The kitchen is not a place they spend time. They have a cook. Like, it's just much more, yeah, just like the division between, it, it just feels like there's a simmering kind of cauldron of, of inequality that isn't going to end well. Well, the thing is, I, I got a thing from, do you get the, like, social security? I don't know if everyone gets them at once. Like, I got an email from the social security administration where it's, see your, like, earnings. And so, like, I went to it, and it was, like, very funny to go back and see from when I was in high school and, like, made, like, $3,600, like, summer of 1989, like, <laughs> up until, like, now. And they they track your entire That's wild. existence. I don't know if you get it. It's, it's fascinating to look at. And what I think about a lot is at each level, you don't have enough. And it's really what keeps these economies going. Like, I don't know anyone who reaches a point where they're like, mm, I'm good. Like, most, just about every, everyone I know, like, ends up, no matter what level they are, they want more. And, and if you're like a billionaire, again, I don't know billionaires, but if yeah. you're a billionaire, it becomes about something different, but you still want more. I, it's just a human condition. Yeah, it's a, there's a lifestyle creep. There is a competitive thing. I have felt both self-conscious about owning a Tesla 3 because I felt it was an ostentatious car when I first got it. And now I feel self-conscious that I, when I drive into some of the parking lots out in Sonoma, I have the oldest, shittiest, most busted up Tesla model <laughs> Tesla that's parked there. So I feel like I could easily find myself getting into that spiral of needing to keep up with the Joneses and that. And it just gets more expensive as you do better in life. Yeah. Unless so that's you, what I think like on, find, the opposite like, side. Know. Yeah. The opposite side of that with the inequality is like we actually are inequality is coming down. And when you look at like the Gini coefficients and stuff like this, and particularly compare market like the United States compared to like the rest of the world. People in the United States should get up every day and like throw themselves down on the ground thanking whatever higher being because they have a massive leg up as far as being in a giant, deep, dynamic economy that is, for all of its flaws and across the economy and society, is incredibly open. As statistically, that is entirely true, but that's not what people are feeling. Right, that's what I mean. It's Neither, the same with yeah, like... Inf- I mean, they're blaming Biden for everything being horrible and America right now is like, paradise compared to the rest of the planet you know yeah Trey, you were just in the uk i mean that's like i don't i I have a lot of british friends i have a lot of british friends so i do this is not anti-british that means it'll come across that but they complain about the price of stuff like non-stop 
like this cost of living crisis stuff. Like when you were there, did you hear about this cost of living crisis like nonstop? I think the Brits are frustrated, yeah. Yeah. They, it's a massive inflation problem. Well, they also don't make nearly as much as Americans. Well done with Brexit. That was a great idea, let me tell you. Yeah, Brexit was dumb. That was my analysis. <laughs> <laughs> Watch out, economist. I'm coming for you. London is a funny place just because it, it's sort of like a, you know, club med for international wealth. Oh, all the Russians and, and Chelsea or whatever, Kensington and stuff. Yeah, if you stay at a fancy hotel, you see a lot of it. You see a lot of it, especially over in Kensington. It's crazy. Go to Harrods in, in yeah. London. London is also, I mean, similar to Paris and France, the economy of London is completely divergent from the yeah. economy of the rest of the country. Like if you go to London, it's fine. It feels fine. It's like West Berlin. But if you go anywhere outside and people are feeling it a lot more. So oh, Yeah, there's a massive divide there. And But also like the UK is just such a worse. centralized market. It was always hard to, for us to make money there because it was too centralized. You could see everyone like within a few blocks of Charlotte Street. It's a kind of small economy, really. I mean, these days it's midsize. And so, you know, in the U.S., you can, you're flying for hours and you're, and you're still in the same country. And it's, it's just so massive and deep and competitive that there's just so many different ways to make money, I feel like, in this market compared to like a market like mm -hmm. the U.K. Anyway, here's to America. This is the America episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the America episode? Okay. Sounds good. I have i don't know if it's just me, but I feel like... I, I can see Troy's going to unspool something. We can make it into a video and do some social clip. Wait, 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 wait. Troy, Troy had well, something to say. What, what well, do you want no, to say, no. Part of my frustration in where does this all go from here is... And I got it wrong like years ago. I thought that if you took ad units off a page and made a better experience, somehow you would be rewarded for it. But the web is incapable of creating, like there's no loyalty on the, on the internet. In publishing, there's no loyalty. So when there's no loyalty and it's all hit and run, your incentive is just to maximize revenue on that particular journey. And even if it does mean inconvenience for, for the reader. So I guess the frustration is we're going down a path. The internet is a media delivery vehicle and the text world is completely broken. But fixing it doesn't drive any benefit to a publisher anymore. This is funny that you say this because a PVA listener and I'll just say digital media executive had just emailed me this, this thing. I'll actually read from it. He said, we just looked at our digital audience numbers from social and search and it's significantly down year over year. We say, well, at least we know the folks who come to us are seeking us out and thus more engaged. But... <laughs> there's no reward for that engagement in a CPM ad sales model. And that's right. the essential thing. Like you can want to do, I always liked when Neil at Dot Dash would come to Digiday conferences years ago and be like, we took ads off the page and yield went up and stuff. And I'm like, wow, this is amazing and stuff. The reality is like that wager isn't working for a lot of people. Well, they took ads off the page and were rewarded in yield because it led to higher affiliate numbers. Yeah. That's a different that's a different question. Well, I mean, then think that's the thing that Jason was saying. It's like for a lot of these categories, they can't actually get out of the CPM ad model. So like if you're in the CPM ad model, you're gonna put more mustard on the hot dog. I don't know if that's an analogy. Is that a saying? Can I can I start that as a saying? Which more one? Mustard on the hot dog? Let's put more mustard on the hot dog. 
you know, we keep talking about it, so it loses its meaning, but there's this existential threat. It's not even an existential threat. It's, it's happening. It's a downward spiral. It's happening to cable. It's happening to media websites. And saying, well, there's nothing we can do. If that's the amount of invention, innovation, imagination that you can summon from yourself and the company you work in, then sell yourself to some group that can kind of leech the last few remaining dollars for the next five years and get out of it. Stop trying. However, if you have some idea, it's also potentially now, now's the time to try something completely new, but it's going to take massive change, massive change. Man, every mile, I did a, I did a podcast with Rich Routman. Do you know Rich? Troy. He he was at Minute Media. He'd been at the NFL before. He's been at sports media for a while. And he's Oh yeah, C- I met I met Rich not long ago, actually. He's at Sporting News, right? Yeah, he's the CEO of the Sporting News. And it's from like 1886, this publication. And they just raised their Series A, a $15 million Series A. They started in 1886. So it took them a little. I was happy with the progress I made after That's I heard amazing. that. The reason that they raised the Series A is because he flipped the model to affiliate and trying to take a rev share off of the gambling ads, right? And so you talk about alignment. It's kind of funny because I was like on the podcast, I was saying, well, Rich, isn't your alignment then to be rooting for your audience to lose a lot of money? He sort of like talked around it a little bit, but like that's the reality of it. So, I mean, any model is flawed, but I did, I do wonder like with sports media and we were talked a lot about getting out of this the CPM ad sales treadmill. And he had a nice little, you know, he's good at sales. So he he had a nice little thing of going to LTV, from CPM to LTV. And, and he made the point, and he said to me, he said, most digital media companies have no idea what the LTV of their audience, uh, no audience member is. Like, no idea. They're just like eyeballs. True. That's not going to end well. It doesn't sound like anybody's making any big enough strides to try to try something new. I don't know what the answer is, but it's not semaphore. It's leads. That's my answer. Why isn't it semaphore, Alex? Because I think that it doesn't feel like a big enough change. Like I, I, you know, there's like very niche subscription models are going to take us this far, but it's not going to save variety. It's not going to save any of these other businesses. Like these businesses are in like a total death loop, it feels like. Yeah. But the crazy thing to me about like... But that's not, it's not entirely true though, right? I can bet, I'll place a bet. I'll place a bet. Wait, about semaphore? No, about... I think Troy is talking about variety now, but... Oh, okay. What are you talking about, Troy? What's not true? Well, I, I just don't think it's in a death spiral. No, things always survive. It's like cockroaches. Yeah. Media will come across, come out the but, other side. People will still want to make it. People will still want to consume it. It'll get harder. It always gets harder. Rinse and repeat. All of these sites are becoming MTV. MTV is no longer relevant. And so I think you can kind of keep things going on fumes for a while, but they're yeah, no but longer replaced- any... They'll be replaced by other things. And then the sites that don't make it across and become MTV will get sent off to what I call the SEO glue factory. Just milk those brands, slap. If the brand has value on it, like a fortune or Forbes, whatever, slap it on like real estate developments, whatever. I don't. Did you read this article in the Times about the number of car com- luxury car companies that are like putting their brands on condo towers in like yeah, Miami? Yeah. <laughs> it's and great. They, There's always please, a way to make money. Please read what Gen Z, and I'm, I'm sure there's going to be even more change with Gen Alpha, but Gen Z, how they're considering brands and media and stuff like that. This is not, even MTV might not be a good analog. These things are dead, dead. I, I would not put a dollar into them. 
AOL still makes a lot of money off of broadcasts. Like they still make a lot of money off it. I don't believe anything is dead. Brian, I'm wondering if you'd stick your neck out. It was interesting for Alex to be entirely dismissive of Semaphore. And the the reason it sticks out for me is because Semaphore has gone down in my media diet. I've reduced it. But Puck remains a big, big part of my media diet. And both of them kind of employ similar media business strategies. If their content strategies are different, that's, yeah. that's, that's something else. But I'm wondering how you would contrast the two and assess their prospects. Hmm. Interesting. So I think you actually have to start with their content like approaches because like I should full disclosure, like I did this tiny little deal with with Puck. So I'm seeing if I can convert like people into subscribers. It's like a miniature deal. But to me, like Puck, I get a lot of people who when I write anything about Puck, reporters who like can't stand. <laughs> and the reason is like a mix of they want to be able to write that stuff if they can, because like Puck's basic stuff is the reporter's notebook. And that's the stuff you have in your notebook, but you haven't been mm. able to check it out. Puck is and you simply can't... the rebundling of bloggers. Good yeah, bloggers. Yeah, but, but I'm saying the approach is that. And yeah. and what Semaphore is, and and I know you and Ben don't see eye to eye for, for different reasons, obviously. But Ben is a scoops machine. And like they are hanging their hat on trying to break news. And that's really hard. It's very hit and miss. And I don't think Semaphore has broken enough news at right. the end of the day. Like Axios took off because Jonathan Swan broke a shit ton of news. I would say that Axios has become part of the substrate of certainly for the last f several years of, of, I think, how we consume verticalized news. Mm -hmm. And Semaphore is kind of taking a page out of the book, but kind of trying to do that and be the Financial Times and be the New York Times. What Puck is doing is... There was a good story, I think I shared it with you guys this week, that like people paying $10 a month to access their favorite blogger is kind of a business model that isn't growing anymore, which is probably you're going to see it put a lot of pressure on Substack because when you think about it, paying 10 bucks for a couple articles a week is pretty expensive relative to another media subscription. And Didn't Substack just, just went to Kickstarter to raise a round? No, they didn't go to Kickstarter. This is a while. That was ago. A, that was a, they, that was a long time ago. They did uh, a crowdfunding. My, my point uh, is, is they've picked good people that know their industries, that create main characters, that persist on storylines, and they're like really, really good bloggers in one package. And that's what Puck is focused on stuff that's really fun to read. And it's to me, their content strategy is close enough to sort of tabloid. Or the stuff that feels addictive that yeah. you want to that you want to read it all the time. The little snarky asides. I mean, it's Gawker to some degree, like modernized because the whole conceit of Gawker was there was the stuff that you and I think this is like a larger conversation. We could do a whole new episode right now, actually. But like, because I think people want real shit right now and they want real conversation. That's why I was always pushing back on this not being too scripted. And the reason, for instance, Bill Simmons had a thing uh, recently about NFL pregame shows and why they're, they seem like they're out of a time capsule because they're not real conversations. It's the same as late night shows. Those interviews where they do the canned story, it's like, well, let me tell you, this thing happened, Jay. And like, <laughs> that is gone with like podcasts and with YouTubers and stuff. And I think it's similar in journalism is, is is reaching this and that Gawker said that we're not going to have the the perfect little story that got through editing. We're going to have the shit that like journalists said would talk about at the bar. 
And that was always, they were going to narrow that gap. And to me, like Puck is a successor to that in some Mm -hmm. way, shape, and form. And they report stuff, quote unquote, report stuff that they're hearing that the New York Times can't and won't. Financial Times can't and won't. And the, the, the information can't and won't. And that's why I hear complaints from, from journalists. So much, of the, so much of the formats for these things that we, we've inherited from stuff that was done 100 years ago, like the language, even the way things are written, the paragraphs, the fact that we have a headline, all of these things come from, from really old formats, right? Old movies, people used to put on a certain accent because sound quality was bad and that carried over, right? And I think what modern media technology has allowed us to do is kind of do away with all of these weird abstractions. People are kind of sick of it and they just prefer hearing somebody speak rather yeah, than, you know, than having this formulaic thing going on. The first time I ever did a panel at an event, I was like so nervous. I remember it was like an iMedia summit. Did you ever go to one of those, Troy? <laughs> remember those things? I think Dave Morgan had like a lifetime achievement plaque at one. He'd been to like 456. But I did a panel there and I was so nervous to do it. And afterwards, this this PR guy I know came up. I was like, oh, how do you, and you know, afterwards when you're, people are like, oh, it was really great. I was like, oh, how do you think <laughs> I went? He's like, it sucked. <laughs> nice. I was like, wait, why? He was like, well, I actually, and he actually meant in a complimentary way. He goes, I know you and you're very smart and personable. And that was, you were not that up there. You were some robot. And that was because I was trying to like act some role. And I feel a lot of, at least maybe it was just me, like you're playing a part in a lot of these media conventions. Like the way you write is different than how you would write an email. And it's the same way, like I would have like reporters sometimes, particularly younger people who, when I knew them in the office, and this is part of the office problem, they were one type. And then like I would, if there'd be like a happy hour, I'd run out, they'd have like, and they were like a totally different person. They were way more interesting. And I never saw that in their work, actually. And that's because like you were trying to follow all these conventions. And I feel like there's a very vibrant area that is, it's all around us of having kind of realer conversations and communicating in much more natural ways than these old fashioned conventions dictate. People want real, I think people want less abstraction between the, the, the thing being talked about and the person talking about it. I think we're pretty good. Humans are pretty good at figuring out what's real. There's this idea of the uncanny valley where we see something that's fake and we don't like it. And the more... I'm going to use that. There's there's a lot of distrust right now. And I think that in an era of like deep distrust and not knowing what's real and not, people latch on to, to real conversation. And I'm actually pretty happy. I hate all the fanfare. Writing a letter in French, you need to put like 13 words at the beginning and end of it. There's like such a formula for being polite in a letter. And those things always threw me off. And I, I like the fact that it's happening to media. Like, why do we need titles? Yeah, the honorific. Anyone who still is using an honorific, I mean, stop. Yeah, fuck that. Who cares? Who gives a shit? Mr. This. I, although the, the opposite of that is the first name thing with the Silicon Valley people. I use first name th- with people who I know. I actually flip back and forth. If I really know someone, I use the first name on second reference, and it's intentional what I'm doing. But if I don't know the person, I don't use the first name. I hug people. I just hug like first time I meet them. No, I'm talking when See, writing. I don't like I, talk, I call people the first I, I hug them in my writing. What about like Mr. Mr. Young? <laughs> like, no, 50 years old. I'm not calling someone Mr. or Mrs. anything. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm glad we added, added this <laughs> segment. Okay. So I, think I actually will, think, I think that we'll, this. Uh, can I, I, I use this well, for my well, newsletter well, on Thursday? Hang on, hang on. 
hang on we'll release this as a bonus episode so take it as that if you want to no 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 no. i don't i don't want to do that i i want i my preference alex would be that this appends the conversation about that we didn't really finish on the failure of website design or not website design just like the cluttered bullshit of the web this that's where that's what this is meant to logically follow well, but I would say like we released this like a day later, bonus episode. I want to try it out. No, I so want to see I, what it does I want, to I'm numbers. writing about this for Thursday. About what? I'm writing about, I'm going to call it the uncanny valley of media. Is because like it's about how you make media changing and using all of these. I just think that there is this, this shift to, to more like I've tried to call it like real media or something like this that is less just like a lot of the conventions that were required of media. And I think that you see it across, you know, radio seems all like late night TV. It's like, you really? Like nobody would watch that shit. It's so corny. NFL pregame shows, calling people messers, like all this stuff is like, I mean, leave it behind. In late night shows, so the, the most uncomfortable thing for me to watch right now is, or I mean, they're not, they're not happening in the strike, but it's those late night <laughs> interview shows with a yeah, that's host what I mean. where everybody's, so these I find so cringy. They're impossible to watch. Everybody's fake. Nothing is real. It's like I got a bunch of like emails after doing that podcast with Jason because he wasn't full of shit. Literally, that's how full of shit people are when they talk about their jobs. Like the fact that if you're just like moderately not full of shit, it's remarkable. (laughs) So how does this tie in with your job about the internet becoming a piece of shit, Troy? Just real... I think that there's a potential for the internet as a real place for personal expression and that, that there's, we're building new mechanisms so that people can allow you to be you and make that commercially viable. I mean, maybe that's where being is going. I think that there's a pool of content. This, is, this connects us to the beginning of the episode. I think that there's a pool of content that sort of seamlessly extends from human beings, be it text, pictures, video, whatever, that is a category of media that we've never known before. We call it social media, but and we thought it was just something to replace one category of media. And to me, it's eating more and more and more of the spectrum. When I was at Digit, I was like, my sort of theory was that the feed had changed consumer expectations as far as how engaging content should be. That in that, like, they wouldn't say that, oh, I'm reading this for work, so it can be dry and boring and nonsense. But when I'm reading stuff otherwise, like it, it has a, I have a different like criteria for it. I think that was broadly true, but I think what you're saying is it's changed all kinds of expectations. We haven't fully recognized all of them yet, I think, in the way we create media. And that's why podcasters and YouTubers and TikTokers and stuff, like it's just natural to them. And the media is going to have to catch up because people are just consuming media. It's not like, oh, I watched TikTok and then I went to like turn on NBC that's News. Right. I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. So I want to do The View from Premium Economy. It's not going to be called The View from Comfort Plus. I was waiting for Delta to come with a sponsorship offer. Tasteful, tasteful one, elegant. But they just changed their Sky Miles program. And this is, again, it goes to misaligned incentives because they changed what was admittedly a convoluted system 
that admittedly I was able to game to get to like platinum medallion despite only spending $4,000 on flights because once you get the MQMs rolling in and you get the credit card and stuff like this, you can find your way into premium economy. And I'm not greedy. I don't need to be up at the front of the plane with Troy. I can be comfortable in premium economy. They took away the banana. I'm fine with that, but it's fine. I get an extra six inches. I'm only like five, nine. It's, it's perfectly good for me. They changed it all to just how much money you spend, MQDs. They would take me from platinum medallion to no medallion status. We'll catch my voice. Oh, yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> do you need a moment, Brian? They okay. would take me, I'm nearly a million mile flyer, and they would take me down to no status. Zone three, boarding, that kind of thing. And again, this is an inequality issue. And <laughs> it, it's when you're in the middle, you get crunched. And that's, that's my only takeaway. So Delta, I don't know if I'm sticking with you. Pretty rich yeah. to call it an inequality issue when they're removing status from you. They're just equalizing <laughs> you with the rest of them. <laughs> I don't like that. As I said, I didn't say which people I was on the side of. <laughs> I don't know if this is a premium economy perk. It's certainly a good product. But one of my favorite things is when you arrive in your hotel room and there's a bowl of fresh fruit. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, like a bottle of champagne. On That's ice. European. That's super European though, right? And the other thing is very thoughtful is when they wrap your cords up with a with a little velcro wrapper your yeah. your plugs as a just as a service Troy, um, Troy, you know, this the, has no. I'm, this has nothing to do with premium economy, Troy. Yeah, this <laughs> nobody is about does that for. Economy. This is this, <laughs> this is a this is your. It's a banana, Michael moment. Yeah, the, <laughs> the home the homewood sweets doesn't do that for me. No, they, the double tree might give you a cookie. Double tree. Yeah, I got a. I stayed at a double tree the other week. I got a cookie. Yeah. Well, I, I, I stayed at double tree in Boston. It was perfectly fine. Got a lot of work done in the lobby. I do not understand any mileage program and I've never taken the time and I always feel like I'm being screwed around. I think I'm racking up points, but I rarely use them unless my wife takes over and figures out all the complicated math. I mean, nobody talks about the fact that this thing is so convoluted, so it optimizes for the people who want to spend the time to do it. It's in itself like That's creating a subclass of it. people. I mean, the fact that you could like do, I only one time did a mileage run like the fact that you, ha you could set up a system where if you took enough time and energy that you could like get your way into the first class cabin without just having the raw capital to me is inspiring. It's inspiring. I find that, I mean, it's a whole new topic, but I find that the idea that you are, it's a very Western thing that Poorer people, people with less money to spend, are expected to spend their, something that's even more valuable, which is their fucking time, yeah. to get any perk whatsoever. They said, oh, you don't have the money? Well, instead of spending those 45 minutes with your kids, read through this fucking thing. Sorry, I'm swearing again. Read through this bloody thing and spend bloody, no, hours of your life, spend hours of your life couponing, doing stuff like trying to understand points, signing up to credit cards, the kind of recklessness with which we ask people to waste their time to do something that could be made easier. I find like very distasteful. Really? Some, some people yeah. like it, Alex. I think that's great. Yeah. It's a game. It's like the same as playing a video game. I mean, life is just a video game. I thought life was a highway. 
the one of the biggest differences in classes here and in, depending on your financial status is how much time you have to waste. Time you have to waste at the airport, time you have to waste at the DMV, time you have to waste to not get a shitty flight, to wait in line to get something like slightly cheaper. The amount of wasted human effort that comes from being poor that is wildly disproportionate with being wealthy. Wildly mm. disproportionate. True wealth. True wealth is having uh, true time. Wealth is time. True wealth it. is time. And capitalism has managed to yeah. really make time and dollars pretty one-to-one. Like time is the dollar stable coin or something. It's terrible. It's terrible the amount of hours people will spend not just not to get screwed by companies. Yeah. Wow. That's a good bow to put on this episode. I think it's all about like true wealth is time and autonomy. That's my spend time with your friends and please spend time rating and reviewing and sharing this podcast because it does help. Yeah, let's do that. And any webinars for you guys to promote? You got any webinars? No. Okay, no webinars. <laughs> we'll leave it there for this week. That was fun. That was great. Thank you. Awesome. <laughs>